I could listen to that one all day. I really like that. Matthew 2 tonight, and we're continuing our message from this morning. And so you guys get to get the whole rest of the message. And there's, you know, a good 70, 80 people that are missing out on that. So just think of that. It's great stuff. This morning we talked about uh, four sets or four individuals of participants in the Christmas story. We talked about Mary and, and anybody remember what kind of faith that Mary had just off the top of your head? She had obedient faith. Yes, she had obedient faith. And then we talked about Joseph and we said that Joseph had a patient faith. Boy, you guys are sharp. Either that or you have your notes right in front of you. You're doing good. That's why I'm asking you, because I don't have my notes with me. I've already forgotten since this morning. Um, Then we talked about the shepherds, and the shepherds had a curious faith. And then we talked about the two senior saints uh, who were involved in the Christmas story. There was, uh, what was the first guy's name? Simeon, and then there's Anna. And we said that they had an enduring faith. And so tonight we're going to look at the wise men, and we might call theirs a pursuing faith. So Matthew chapter 2, anybody need notes out there? Do we get the notes out to you? Okay, we need some notes right back here, Mrs. Bernard. Does anybody have notes in here? We have extra notes somewhere? I'm sure we have enough. Okay, Matthew 2. And verses 1 through 12 is what we're going to read. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And let's talk about pursuing faith tonight on the part of the wise men. Father, would you bless thou during our study tonight. And I pray that you would help us to really connect with the faith that these men had and help us to have those same traits and characteristics in our own lives as we follow you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So let's talk about these wise men and their pursuing faith. 
and where these guys even came from. Because you, if you listen to the song, it's We Three Kings of Orient are, right? And first of all, there may be a couple things wrong with that song. It's not inspired scripture. Uh, one thing is we don't know that there are three. The other thing is they likely did not come from the Orient. Okay, they may have come, uh, most Bible scholars think that they came from about 900 miles east of Jerusalem, which was in modern-day Iran or Yemen or ancient Persia, basically, is what it was. And uh, some historians will even tell us that the king of Yemen during this time period and his princes were Jews, which is an interesting thing. I don't know if that's who these guys were. Um, there is a tradition that has even given them names, and I don't even remember what the names are. One of them, I think, is Baltazar and some, some other guy, and some other guy, you've probably seen him on a movie or something. But the scripture doesn't give them any names. And so we know that they came from the east, and that they had seen this star, and instead of going out on some limbs here and trying to speculate, let's just go where the scripture goes with these guys and, and see what we can learn. One of the things that we know right up front, and this is the first thing in your notes, is that they had a passion for truth. They had a passion for truth. For anyone to travel 900 miles in a camel train, you would have had to have had a passion for truth. Now, there are a lot of folks who say that they have a passion for truth, but they only have a passion to prove themselves right. Right? Have you ever met this person? Like, they think they're right about something and they're willing to even look it up on their phone to prove it to you? Right? They're willing to go and look it up on Google and print out a 17-page thing and bring it to you to show that they're right about something. So sometimes our passion for truth may not be really for truth. It may be for our view of truth. A passion for truth is when we go to God and say, God, you lead me to truth wherever that takes me. Whatever your truth is for my life, guide me to that truth and make me able to accept it. Because what we do when God guides us to something we don't like sometimes, we try to go around it. We try to circumvent it. We try to say, well, that's not truth, and this guy said this, and there's an opinion here that says this. And uh, these, these men, it seems, had a real passion for truth. It is likely that these Persian men knew of the writings of Daniel, because Daniel lived in that same area. And so if you go back to Daniel, and we'll just walk back through this a little bit scripturally. Daniel lived about 550 years before Christ. Actually, he lived for quite a long period of time, but his writings that they may have been familiar with were in about the 538 B.C. range, uh, is what, at least what Schofield dates them as. And if you look at this in Daniel 9, now Daniel gave a specific prophecy and it's so specific that it goes to the year that Cyrus the Great stands up and gives a command to go and restore and build Jerusalem. And that command can actually be dated historically. 
And so you can go back to that date, and then you can take Daniel's 70 weeks, and you will come smack dab right to the birth of Christ. That's where it's going to take you to. So here's what Daniel says in, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. And when he's talking about weeks, he's talking about 70 groups of seven years. Right? So 70 groups of seven years. 70 weeks. And upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Okay, and there, by the way, there are three different decrees that were given to rebuild Jerusalem. And you could look at different ones. You had uh, Cyrus who gave one, and then you have Darius who gave one, and then you had Artaxerxes who gave one. And so there's different viewpoints on which one he's talking about here. The, from the going for the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks. Okay, so seven weeks would be, according to our, our math here, 49 years. And then there's another grouping, three score and two weeks. So this is 62 times seven which I'm sure you guys just did in your head, and it's 432. Is that right? Anybody? Anybody? Got your calculator out? Yeah, 432 plus 49. Anybody got that? Yeah. 481, something like that. I don't know. So it says, okay, look what it says. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto, now notice, this is the big part you want to, want to get, unto the Messiah, the Prince. This is the anointed one. This is the one who they had looked for and they were, were looking for. And his name is put in here, in bold, Messiah, anointed one, Masiach, right here in the scripture. The street shall be built again on the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. This is talking about the crucifixion, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood. And then it, verse 27 talks about the seven-year tribulation period. So without us going any deeper into Daniel's writings, because we will totally lose ourselves and possibly drown um, I took, I had to take Daniel and Revelation back when I was in Bible school, and I think it's the hardest class I ever had to take. Because they're, these guys are talking to you, your professors, off of books that were written hundreds of years ago that they don't even understand. And so they're just standing up there basically reading. And you're kind of, your head drooping, you know, you worked all night. Now you're trying to listen to what somebody's take on Daniel was. Daniel is a tough book. In fact, uh, Daniel chapter 10 and 11 are chapters that still, to this day, most people who've studied the Bible for decades don't have a real understanding of. But we do know a lot about Daniel 9. And we do know that these wise men, if they had access to this, and they were pretty smart guys, 
that they could have used this to figure out when Messiah would come. They also may have been aware of the prophecy of Balaam. Now, most people don't even know that there was a prophecy of Balaam. And when we think of Balaam, what do we think of? And we think of, we heard some different words out there, but the word I heard the most was donkey. Right? I had a little boy that came in my office this last week from our school. And apparently he had said a word that was not best used. And his teacher told him to come and ask me about it because he said to her, isn't that word in the Bible? And the word was the Bible word for donkey. That's what I told him. I said, if you're going to use that word, you have to be speaking in English about a donkey. It can't be about some other part of the human anatomy. It actually has to be about a donkey. And so we had a big discussion about that. But that's what most people think of when they think of Balaam, because his donkey spoke to him. Right? But did you know that Balaam gave a prophecy about the Messiah? So let's go back to Numbers 24. The difference between Balaam and Daniel would be this. Balaam likely did not even understand the prophecy he was given because God was just using him as a mouthpiece or an instrument to speak to the wicked king Balak. Daniel was so in tune with God that he likely knew what he was speaking about in his own prophecy given to him by God. And so, difference between a believer and one who was just there for the money. Here's what he said. He gave a prophecy all the way back. Now, this is a different era, folks. Okay, This is a thousand years almost before Daniel. It's about 1450 B.C. Numbers 24, verse 15. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor has said, and the man whose eyes are open has said, he has said, which heard the words of God. And knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. Now, verse 17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. Did you catch that? There shall come a star out of Jacob. And a scepter, or a kingdom, shall rise out of Israel. And shall smite the quarters of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. Okay, so you could keep reading, and there's kind of a whole messianic prophecy here. But Balaam, reason why we, it's possible, it's likely, that these wise men who are familiar with all ancient writings in their region, they would have known because Balaam was from this area that would later become Persia. And so there are two historic writings that were accessible to these men who likely came from the area of Persia who had a passion for truth. Now, if you didn't get anything else I just said in this section, get the last sentence. Whatever the case, they were going to journey toward the answer. Okay, and that's what they were doing. They wanted to know truth. And that's where we should be in our lives, with our faith. If we don't understand, if we don't know, we should say, God, would you guide me toward truth? 
And if you do that, God will always guide you toward truth. I think it's just fine for a believer just to sit in a quiet room every once in a while and say, Holy Spirit, show me the next thing I'm supposed to do as a husband. Holy Spirit, show me the next thing I'm supposed to do as a father or as a wife or as a mother, as a grandparent, as a friend. Show me the next thing I'm supposed to do. Show me the next words that I should present to my friend or my coworker or my neighbor. And if we would just pursue God in that way, then he would help us to find the answer just as he helped the wise men. So they had a passion for truth. Then we go back to Matthew 2, though, and we see this second part, which was a pursuit of the king. Look what happened when they showed up at Jerusalem. And a lot of people will say, well, why did they go to Jerusalem first? Because Jerusalem is only about five miles from Bethlehem. And the star took them that far first. And so they went to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they said in verse 2, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now I want you just to think about that term for just a minute. He was born king. Is there anybody ever that you can think of that is born king? Now, a lot of times there are born princes, and they're born princesses, but it is very rare to find anyone who is already, when they're born, they're already the king. Now, it did happen a couple of times in history where maybe the heir had already died, to the, or the heir to the throne was like an aunt or an uncle, and then the mother had a baby after the king was already dead. You can look at British history. I'm sure you, you could find one. Or you could look on Snopes or wherever. I'm sure that you're going to find something on it. But here you have one who is born king. And the reason we know he was born king is because he was already king. He was already king of kings and lord of lords. And he was only being born to change into human form to come and save us from our sins. And so they're looking for the king of the Jews. And that is a divine title of God. Look back to Psalm chapter 10. I'll show you this. Psalm chapter 10 is one of the Messianic Psalms. <clears throat> Just show you one verse here. Psalm 10, verse number 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. And you can read in some other messianic psalms where the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou upon my right hand. And it's talking about Jehovah speaking to Adonai or Messiah to come and sit on his right hand. And so there was a pursuit of the king. Now, they were guided in this pursuit by a real star. And here's how they described it back in Matthew 2, verse number 2. Look what it says. For we have seen... His star. His star. So this was a star that was named after a king. This is a star that specifically was named. Now, there are presentations. You could watch actual big, long presentations of guys who are much smarter than I am, who have studied the stars and studied the constellations. 
and have found a star named Regulus, who likely could have been this star, that came in a direction that it only comes once every 5,000 years and just happened to do it at this point in time in human history. And I think we even showed a video once that, that kind of walked through Regulus and what some of its qualities were. But they said, we've seen his star. Here's what you have to know about anything that deals with stars, though. Okay, think about this just for a minute. It takes about eight and a half or nine minutes for light to get from the sun to the earth. Okay, and that's not only 93 million miles away. Now, there are stars that are in our galaxy that are hundreds of light years away. And what that means is light from that star takes sometimes four or five hundred years to even get to where we see it. Okay? So we've got stars that pop up in our telescopes now that are 30 or 40,000 light years away that have just come into view. That's why Hubble, out there in space, can, with no atmosphere, can see some of those stars that are popping in from other galaxies. And we know that now that there are not only just a few galaxies, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars. And so for, here's what we have to know. This just blows our mind to even think about it. Anything that has to do with the stellar quality of how the stars orbit and how that all works, that would have had to be planned from eternity past. When the stars were breathed out of the mouth of God, they would have already had to be in these orbits for it to line up this way for these guys to see this star. Now, that's, that's mind-numbing, and, and uh, I can't even wrap my brain around that. There's another option on this, and this is an option that's, I think, less likely but for those who think, boy, that's just too miraculous for me with a star, you know, heading the wrong direction at just the right time. Um, the other option is the Shekinah glory of God was so bright that it could be viewed as a star. Think about uh, the Jews as they're out in the wilderness. During the day, there's a pillar of, of uh, cloud. During the night, there's a pillar of fire. And it would light upon their camp and show exactly where their camp was, and show the glory of God over their camp. The Shekinah glory, when it entered the temple of Solomon, every person had to go out of the temple because it was so bright. When it entered the tabernacle, it knocked people over, and when Moses came out, his face was glowing, where they had to ask him to cover his face with a veil. So I've just given you an option there. If you say, I'm just, I don't know if I can buy into the star thing, okay, then how about the glory of God shining so brightly that it looked like a star? Either way, that seems pretty miraculous, doesn't it? We've seen his star. So there was a pursuit of the king. They said, we want to know where the king of the Jews is, the one who's born king. Now they actually get there, and of course we know Herod had some ulterior motives. And he asked them these questions and wanted to know what time did the star appear. And uh, that also is a pretty neat thing in verse 7 because it talks about a certain star happened uh, in an extended time that they had begun to follow. And so this was not just a, a one-time thing. 
Now, this was a star that they had followed. And we, as a people, are probably not real good at following stars like they may have been in ancient times because we have wristwatches. And we, have, uh, we actually have phones. That that's a lot of people just, what time is it? And they look at their phone. Right? Uh, we don't really get into timing things by the stars. Where we walk outside and look, oh, must be October. We don't do it that way, right? But in ancient times, when they didn't have any artificial light, these guys were so in touch with the constellations and the stars that they could walk outside and say, oh, look at that. Look where Sirius is. It must be October 11th. Right? Or whatever month that they called it, because they probably didn't call it those months. So here they are, and it's happened in a certain way, an extended time, and now Herod sends them to Bethlehem. Go and search diligently for a young child. Look at verse 9, where the star kind of picks up again. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And so as they pursued the king, all of these elements happen with the star. And they're looking for King Jesus. They get there, and I like verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Because they're being led by a divine path to meet the king. Verse 11, when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, now look at this, and fell down. So the third part is a purity in their worship. They fell down and worshipped him. Now I asked a question in your notes, how many adults do you see bowing down to toddlers? And then I began to think that actually it's quite a few. So I don't know if that's the best question, because... I kind of have to admit that sometimes I end up doing whatever the two-year-old tells me to do. It's just the way of life at this point. Our first two-year-old was Cody, and he was two when I was 27 years old. And he got away with absolutely nothing. And then Dawson was the next two-year-old, and I was still in my 20s, and I had a lot of energy. And he got away with very, very little. And then Autumn got away with even more uh, as I entered into my early 30s, but mainly because she's a girl, right? Now, I'm 43 years old and I have a two-year-old. She gets away with whatever she wants to get away with. I I mean, if Cody had come to me when he was two and said, Dad, I want some candy, I'd have told him, no, go away. You don't get candy. And he would have left. He wouldn't have asked again. He wouldn't have bothered me. Because he knew if you ask again, you're going to get in trouble. Sophie will stand there and, Dad, I want some candy. Not right now. Dad, I want some candy. Not right now. Dad, I want some candy. Not not right now. Then she will get a chair and climb up to actually start getting the candy for herself. And you, uh, you really have to come out of the stupor of almost feeling like a grandparent to realize that you're supposed to actually take care of this situation. And sometimes the other kids tell me, Dad, can you stop her? Right? So this verse has a different dynamic with that question with me. 
But think of this. this is, these are grown men. Some say they were kings in their own right, earthly kings, princes, wise men, wealthy. And they come into the room and immediately think of the scene as they fall down on their faces, which is what worship is, before the young child. They fall down on their faces before a toddler and worship him. And in doing so, they showed for us that no matter who you are, no matter what your station in life is, no matter how successful you've been, no matter how your body is made, and no matter how what your looks are, and no matter how wealthy you are, the only way to come to Christ is through a childlike faith, where you have to come down and fall as a child would in worship. And that's what the wise men did. So there was a purity in their worship. This was not just a token thing. They didn't enter the room and say, okay, now we see that's him. Okay. No, they, they fell in. They were serious about this thing. They had pursued truth. That's why they're so excited when the star reappears. Because truth is going to guide them now to the king. And they're going to go in before the king and they're going to worship the king. And then the part that we seem to know the most about, because we three kings of Orient are was bearing gifts, something like that. Yeah, so we know about the gifts. They presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So we see a present for the Savior. Now we don't know, we said at the outset, how many wise men there were. We do know, because it's defined right here in the Scripture, that there were three gifts. And these gifts had certain meanings. They were symbolic. Gold, which obviously is valuable in any era of history, a costly symbol of divinity. Even the heathen made their idols of gold. Because gold said, this is my God. It's a symbol of divinity. It's giving an attribute to God. And a gold still does that today in our lives. It shows us what's most important. So, gold. And then, the last two come from trees. And, and from beneath the bark of the trees. Frankincense, which was used in ancient times in worship, and it's still some churches you, uh, will burn frankincense. An offering of worship. So, gold shows that he's the king Worship, or frankincense shows that he's the Savior. He's, the, he's not only the king, he's the God who I want to follow. And so you've got both of these tied together. Gold showing divinity, frankincense showing his kingdom. And then myrrh. Myrrh is a spice used in embalming, and myrrh is... A prophecy, really, that this king would not only be the king and would not only be the God, but he would also be the Savior. And to be the Savior, these guys knew, 
because they were familiar with the writings of the Old Testament, to be the Savior and to be the Masyak, he would have to be wounded for our transgressions. He would have to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace would have to be laid upon him, and that he would have to give his life. Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, describes the crucifixion and some of the things that would take place hundreds of years before the Roman government ever appeared on the scene to initiate crucifixion. And so these wise men were prophets in their own right. Now, interesting in verse number 12, their faith was still being pursued after they met the Savior. Look at verse number 12. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. They didn't just go on this journey as an adventure. They went on this journey because they believed. They didn't go on this journey as a pilgrimage to highlight themselves and to be able to go back with the badge and to say, we went to this place and now we're okay. They went there as followers of the one true God. And so when God says, hey, don't go back and tell Herod anything, they obeyed, they followed, they did what God asked them to do. And so the wise man, I think, had great faith. And they exhibited that faith as well. Talked about a lot of people today. Um, in Life Group this morning, we also talked about some unique characters that are involved. Herod, uh, who obviously had some struggles with identity here. And then in Luke 2, Caesar Augustus and Cyrenius. So you had three regional or, or uh, worldly leaders who were involved in this story. And think about what their place in it was and, and how it all came together. But the people of faith who are in the Christmas story have so much to offer us in our own faith. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in the closing word tonight. Good to see you out. And don't forget about all the events of the week. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for the testimony of the wise men. And even though it's difficult for us thousands of years later to wrap our brains totally around what happened with the wise men, we trust you and we know that it did happen. Whatever way and whatever means that this took place, we know someday we will be uh, in on that knowledge. And, and we just thank you for your faith to pursue you. And I pray that we in 2015 would still pursue you and still desire relationship with you and still fall down before you with our hearts in worship and allow you to guide us into all truth. Bless us as we go from this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, my God.